Argument, a podcast for speech language pathologists, audiologists, and the scientists who support them. A podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate, but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims. Welcome to episode seven. So in this episode, what we're going to talk about is some of the main concerns that SLPs have been presenting within our field. And I started collecting data on this back in November, December, (laughs) when I realized that it's all SLPs we're talking about. And so it would be wise for us to start digging into it within evidence and argument. And when I started um, basically pulling stuff off of social media, both in Facebook groups that I'm on and via surveys on Instagram and, you know, other people's social media pages and whatnot, I felt like the complaints centered primarily around three or four big things, money, respect, workload, and diversity. So money being, you know, most SLPs just saying, we're not paid enough. And this stands out compared to similar professions like OT and PT. They get more insurance reimbursement than us. And in some school districts, OTs and PTs are even on higher pay scales than SLPs. So it's like a very direct comparison. It's not necessarily SLPs saying, dang it, I wish we made as much as attorneys do. It's them saying, look at this person right next to me making 15K more than me per year. You know, The respect thing, there's a lot of conversation around there being too little autonomy in decision-making, people not knowing what we do. When people do know what they do, they don't respect us. The workload thing is usually related to productivity and caseload size, or like for school-based SLPs, too much of an expectation for labor that doesn't directly contribute to their clients. So like doing things like bus duty and stuff and having difficulty with pushing back on not doing that type of things, that type of thing. And then the diversity issue being just too white, too female, and concerns that that is detrimental to our field. So when Ianessa and I sat down to kind of look over all of these things, we created our own categories that are a little bit more specific than these. So going forward, we're going to try to address both the problems and the solutions from these categories. And they are... One is training and expertise. That is a theme that pops up constantly in problem solving and complaints within our field. The second one is our perceived value. What other people think of us, whether or not they're respecting us, whether or not they're paying us, all that type of thing. The third one is how money flows because money is often what SLPs are complaining about. They're complaining about paying it and they're complaining about not getting enough of it. And then the fourth fourth thing is um, the bias within our field and the fact that in many ways we're a very myopic profession. So let's just start tackling each of those four topics one by one and we'll pull in bits and pieces of things that SLPs and professionals within the field have reported to us and even share some of their audio clips and stuff. So training expertise is something I've talked about so much but mostly yeah mostly in the swallowing area. I guess between the two of us I've spent a lot more time on faculty teaching students. And I've given a CEU course to almost every state in the United States and like 20 different countries. And here's one thing that uh, might give peace of mind, but also blow your mind, which is as it relates to swallowing, having been to so many countries in so many states, I can't say that I notice a difference in the baseline competency in terms of what people know about the swallowing mechanism and that kind of stuff, right? But what I do see is a huge difference in their willingness to think out loud, in their willingness to um, be wrong, in their willingness to self-study and learn on their own. There is something that you and Brooke talked about regarding who teaches us And it's about the fact that our, and we talked about in the problem sec, uh, sorry, in the history section, 
in the in the sixth episode, which is the first part of this trilogy, where we said we have these three different, at least three different constituents. We have the researchers, we have the students, we have the clinicians, we have administrators, et cetera, right? And the idea is that we started out with people at universities. That's how our field started. And people at universities continue to dominate decision-making, even if it's just ASHA bringing them in for a committee and getting their opinion. They're often the business makers who make certain products or certain training things. They're often the ones who get, who are ASHA CEU providers. They're often the ones who give talks to educate people, but they're not necessarily the ones on the ground dealing with what they, what clinicians deal with. And at the end of the day, training expertise, as you said, feeds into reputation. It feeds into money. Uh, it feeds into, uh, you know, our perceived perception of ourselves. So what I, what I really like about that is when you said, Meredith, that we as PhDs do have a skill that we bring when we teach, and that is we have history with self-taught skill-based learning, right? So yes, we do take courses in your, in your PhD, but taking a course and passing alone is not enough to get a PhD. You have to write a dissertation. You have to think through the literature. You have to on your own, read it, synthesize it, explain it back and be wrong and be criticized at every turn. You get criticized all the time. It's literally the job of submitting a paper, of submitting a grant, of giving a talk, of going to your mentor to get redlined all the time until you're fine-tuned. It's not for the meek necessarily. And so that process, unfortunately, even though that's something we've learned to be able to, to teach, is shot out of our teaching. Our field often, you know, is filled with a, a demographic where it's not exactly part of the culture to be criticized on a regular basis. And the people who can afford, you know, $54,000 a year to be a speech pathologist who's not going to make that money anyway, are tend to be uh, whiter and they tend to be people who are, are from a middle class to upper class home. So that, that to me is one big issue. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. At the university level, it's about the universities just wanting to push everyone through the program without any student complaints because complaints are bad. Complaints are money lost for the university and trouble for the university. So faculty, even if they don't want to, are pressured to keep the students calm and complaint-free. I was totally guilty of this as a faculty member and continue to be, for sure, the faculty who are really pushing the students and making them uncomfortable at times are taking the greatest risks. And sometimes those risks end in reward and sometimes not so much. And so people are hesitant to go there. Then, yeah, I think the bigger thing is once we graduate, our field of disproportionately white upper middle class women, which, yes, includes me, is heavily socialized to always make each other feel good and not push or challenge each other. It's socially considered far worse to bring up a peer's challenge areas and point them out and work to problem solve them with them than to always just smile and tell her she's great. Like the critical ones <laughs> are not rewarded for that socially, that's for sure. Um, and there's good and bad things about that. The good part is women are wonderf wonderfully warm and supportive of each other, and that should be celebrated as an asset. But a problem with it is, as a field, I think it's created this culture of pushing everything below the surface. People are real hesitant to be direct in any way because it'll be perceived as mean or harsh, and they know that it just won't end well for them. And so you get a lot of just avoidance and like subtle passive-aggressive stuff that just doesn't work well for us, you know, on social media or in the workplace. And we could even take this in the direction of how harmful that is to diverse communication styles as well. And how when we all are expected to and reinforcing needing to communicate in each other with each other in a very specific way, what that kind of shows is that we can be inflexible communicators and we can be unaccepting of diverse thought patterns or cultures because we expect certain behavioral norms out of each other. Then the other possibly relevant factor, the average SLP, you know, as I'm saying this average, not all. So for those of you who are like, that's not me. Like, yeah, I know we're talking about, you know, the average, <laughs> the mean here. The average SLP has a spouse with steady and decent income. So I also think there's an element of this type of 
everything's fine. Everything's fine. Be positive. Be positive. Don't be negative. This type of behavior coming from a place of protecting the status of people who don't suffer much from the problems in our field in the first place. Because if you're someone who's making $45,000 per year and you have a spouse who's making nearly six figures or over six figures, it probably just isn't a problem for you, really. You just need a job where you can show up, do the thing, feel proud about making a difference in another human being's life, and then go home and deal with the rest of the household workload. There will be people who, for a variety of reasons, won't push hard for field or won't push hard for change in our field because it's truly more trouble than it's worth. I think there's ways in which privilege directly messes us up. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware, um, especially those of us who are in privileged privileged positions, how we're problem solving this. But yeah, back to the point, teach yourself. And like that grit, that thing is present among academics. I don't know a PhD who hasn't at least somewhat or mostly mastered this. And it's not because they're geniuses or super smart or super hardworking or, you know, um, super anything. It's because they've been taught to and socialized to. And that's one skill set that we should figure out new and creative ways to spread that norm throughout our field. The norm of you've got to take this on yourself. You've got to teach yourself and figure it out. The P- the PhDs in our field have figured that out on their own. And that's the skill that I think they need to be passing to clinicians. And there's also something to be said for, you know, like when you mention, you know, PhDs in our field, not having enough of the, you know, on the ground clinical expertise, there's entire conferences in our field that sell so well because they're marketed as coming from clinicians, like by clinicians for clinicians, you know, on the ground tips and tricks and stuff like that, which is fascinating. But one of the, but, you know, we've kind of already talked about that topic a little bit in previous episodes. I think the thing that we really need to dig into a little bit on this one too, is the fact that we continue to bring in students and teach them to behave the way they always have been through our clinical training. Like, how do we decide (laughs) who gets into, you know, our CSD programs? Yeah. So you're saying something that brings me in two directions. I want to talk about clinical supervisors you know, at the staff or CFY level. And I want to talk about who gets admitted to our programs in the first place. And so briefly, I can say, I don't think that individuals who deal with the clinical courses, not the theory stuff, whether they have a PhD or not, are given as much respect and room to balance what the theorists, what the PhDs are saying. What I say gets so much more weight than what the clinical supervisors say. And even more so, many places I've worked where I've tried to galvanize and bring in the the clinicians at the local hospital where our students were going or the clinical uh, faculty and say, hey, I really want to do this theory-based practice, evidence-based practice thing and bring us together. Sometimes they have said, revealed later on, that they didn't want me to know what they're doing because they didn't want to hear me say that it was wrong. And there's, there's no room for them to change anyway, because this is what they've got. So even at our level, at the instructional level, the divisions are so strong, or they'll say, well, you don't really know what it's like anyway on the ground. And it's just like, if we say that, what do we expect our students to end up like? They are going to end up like stu- like kids who have parents who have completely different opinions and won't talk. That's That can't be good, right? In the middle are filled with people who often tell stories about not hacking it in pre-med, not hacking it in biomed, or feeling like they didn't really belong there. And culturally, they found a fit in speech pathology. So my question is, is our ability to attract the students who can hang with the high level of training that you and I want to see, where there's breath all day long, meaning there's aphasia, swallowing, blah, 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 and you need to pull it together just like a med student, where there's breath. You have to understand the body in order to get to ENT versus OB versus rhino, uh, dermatology, et cetera, right? You have to actually 
have the baseline, the foundational principles so strong so you can specialize later and do a lot of self-study, maybe we are not accepting the people who show that grit. We're accepting people who write a nice essay. We're accepting people who got good grades behaving, as you said, the way that they were supposed to, and we are not ready to help them pivot. And in fact, we don't get them ready from undergrad to say, let's call here and say, yes, you guys are all undergrads, but it's almost like we feel bad that they didn't all get in. And when they say, why did you get, why'd you let me in this undergrad if we couldn't make the master's? Because that's what every program does. It's not the master's program's job to make sure every undergrad comes in. We want to get the best and the brightest. And sometimes we get the people we like the most, the people who make us feel good as instructors. We don't get the ones who bust our balls every time they ask a question, right? So I do wonder, to your point, whether or not we are also attracting the kinds of students, if I have to emphasize the problem, who make us feel good and who we believe fit. Yeah. I I don't think we have a very good feel at all for what qualities in students we really should be looking for. Like you said, grit, flexibility, you know? Like, can this person come in and be flexible enough to learn a bunch of different things, synthesize information a bunch of, uh, about or across a lot of different topics? And, you know, we, we work with people for a living. You know, we work with people for a living. Are we screening for people skills, you know, or, or even just the desire to, you know, connect with other human beings and stuff like that? Like, what on earth do we need to be screening for? in our training programs so that, you you know, because in other fields, they don't let people in that they don't feel like are a good fit. And they have like things that knock people out left and right. You know, pharmacy programs have weed out classes. Like in my husband's profession, they have um, a test called the CFA that is extremely difficult to pass. And you don't get to practice if you don't pass that test. But in our field, the praxis, frankly, is pretty easy to pass. Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. pretty freaking easy to pass. Like I, th- there's got to be something that we can do to think a little bit more deeply about that. But um, we'll we'll leave solutions for the next episode since we're supposed to be focused on problems related to training and expertise. Also, what about like the overwhelm that SLPs face with, you know, say you're an SLP, you're in year two of clinical practice, you are listening to these episodes or you're engaging with another clinician and having this moment where you're like, I want to be incredible. I want to be so good that people in my city are on a wait list to come, you know, get services from me. What do I do to, you know, get better? And like the overwhelm of the many sources of information and CEUs people could take like mm-hmm. people don't even know where to start. And then they get on Facebook and say something like, hey, what class should I take for X, Y, Z? And then you just get a laundry list of stuff. And they're like, all right, well, I guess I'll just go with whatever has the most likes. Right. I uh, let, me, let me go back to what you said about uh, Facebook, because I can take it from there. Because in our second group of episodes, episodes four, five, and six, we started with a conversation about people on Facebook being meanies and saying mean things. And Brooke has been really good at starting out, uh, since we're talking about people who've contributed to this trilogy, Brooke has been really good when I see her, someone will say something like tips and tricks for trachs, never seen one before, got a patient in five minutes. And uh, some of us are pulling our hair out and some of us are, you know, saying, girl, fake it till you make it. And then there's people in the middle like Brooke who starts out with, I can imagine how overwhelming it is to be in a position where blah, 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 blah. And then finally, somehow politely says, step away from that patient or refer to somebody else. Is there any way you cannot see that patient? And at the end of the day, my question continues to be, why is it okay to post that in the first place? Let's not talk about all the people who didn't respond properly. But when when and if something really tragic happens and our field is put under a particular spotlight, is that really the time to go back and point fingers? Or do we have the ability to do it now, but we're not doing it because nobody's feelings want to get hurt? How much worse are our feelings going to hurt if somebody really pulls back the blanket and the squalor is shown? We're not thinking that way. We don't think it's going to happen. We think that we are liked enough for that to not happen. That's 100% what SLPs um, think. We also think that we're just going to be taken care of somehow. 
Like they won't, people won't forget about us. Like they'll, they'll make sure that we have a seat at the table. You know, we'll, we'll be, we'll be, things will be fine. Like people will never get that mad at us because, you know, historically most upper middle-class white women are in a position where they don't have those consequences. You know what yeah. I mean? There usually is someone who can save them as something goes wrong and things are less likely to go wrong in the first place. I was actually just going to say that. I said, maybe I'll save it for later, but I was actually going to ask you if culturally the issue is that while white women have never been the absolute bottom of society in the United States, they're second to white males. And at the end of the day, the person who's suffering least um, and the person who's uh, once white males get their due, the person who's getting, you know, at least the, the most savory crumbs <laughs> are going to be white women. But these white women also, you know, give birth to these white men. So it's just one of those strange things. But we'll talk more about that when we get to the second section. But yeah, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. My dad and my husband are always there to save me. So I I, I also wanted to go back to something we said with regard to the history of how we got here. I just want to bring in two points. One was a whole hourly requirement for students, where we talked about the fact that competency itself isn't the baseline. It's how many hours did you spend on something? And I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. In our field, this could be why we have people who say I have 20 years experience, but they really have year one repeated 19 times. And so competency, and when they come to, I can speak for my area, I've been an acute care SLP working for 20 years and I do this. I'll say, all right, so let's let's just back up and talk about, you know, the mechanism of the upper esophageal sphincter. And then it's just like, you know, you can hear the tumbleweed going, you know, across the room because nobody wants to say it. And you're like, no, there's no way that you can say that and not understand. Well, I mean, it's been so long. And it's just so crazy that you can say that. And it could be that we've set up this whole, you paid your dues, you took your courses, you got your A's, you did your hours, you took your easy ass praxis, you got your job where nobody knew what you were doing, and you stayed there for 20 years, and you didn't, to our knowledge, directly kill somebody. Maybe you didn't hurt any, help anybody, but to the point about maybe you didn't help anybody, I also said in the previous episode that Asha spent a lot of time, 20, uh, 20 years, shoring up all the state licensure to make sure competent, not competency, or that that uh, SLPs, at least especially for medical areas, need to demonstrate some competency at the state level. But after 20 years, are there data showing that we're better? This is the thing. Sure. Oh, we can all assume based on other fields, that knowing that a state licensure is in place for nurses, that there aren't a bunch of rogue women and men going around drawing blood and doing things when they shouldn't. Their assumption is that what helps those fields helps us. But we already damn well know that even if they take the ASHA competency levels, there's no data supporting because we're not collecting data on competency. So how could we even transition from an hourly deal to competency where we can't even admit, admit, in documentation, ASHA will not say that in order to see the pharyngeal phase of the swallow, you have to have instrumentation. They won't say it because they're worried, perhaps, that there could be backlash and feelings might be hurt. If we can't even agree among ourselves that we have to have whatever it takes to say this is a basic criteria you shouldn't be practicing if, then we will never get anywhere. Oh, 100%. It's going to have to come from us. Because even if, you know, even if Asha were to make the decision to put something firm in place that was like, you know what, we've got to check your competencies at this point, this point, and this point, you know how much, much pushback would come from SLPs who were like, meh, don't hurt us. No, my friends, my friend, you know. And they do have things in writing, but there's no process in place to confirm it. And you know why? When you're already practicing, they don't control you anymore. The level to do it is students. Right. The ACE Award is also an hour. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. If I see, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say this. If I see one more person touting how many ACE Awards they've taken, it goes right back to this. I did my 300. Can you imagine if students were uh, saying, I did my 375 hours. I actually got 475 hours. That makes me a super student. We'd be like, not necessarily. Right, right. And yet somehow, yeah. (laughs) I've never gotten my ACE Award. I've never filed the paperwork for it. But... (laughs) (laughs) Let's play, um, if it's okay with you, a clip from Brooke Richardson, mm-hmm. an SLP on this topic. I want to make mm-hmm. sure that all the like good um, snippets get in here from some of our fellow clinicians. Okay, so here's some of what Brooke had to say about this topic. 
to like, what problems would you like to see fixed? So my perspective, of course, is that of a medical SLP and one who is working only with adults and only in acute care right now. So I've gone from doing acute plus outpatient together, but always adult and medical down to almost a little bit of a specialty of acute care. So my perspective is that from a medical side of things, speech pathologists are not trained for understanding big medical picture or anatomy and physiology and things that are actually critically important for us to understand in order to practice a speech pathologist in a medical setting. And part of that is because I think our our education standards set forth by accrediting agencies require that no matter what you want to go into, you have to have the same foundational coursework in, for example, um, pediatric language um, disorders, language acquisition, articulation, all the way up to adult dysphagia, adult neurogenics, um, fluency I'm going to throw in there because I always forget fluency because I've locked that out of my mind. (laughs) Um, But I, I think that if we could have a little bit more of a specialization or focus on our education, once we have some very basic foundational information that we could have a much deeper understanding of our subsets of our field. For example, for me, I would want to know a lot more about adult pulmonary um, anatomy and physiology and things like that compared to somebody who is going to be working with children in an elementary school. I can't even begin to guess what they would need to know but they could then have specialized education in that as well. This is something that I hear from SLPs constantly. Like I got, you know, a million little basics, you know, but then after I graduate, then there's just so much for me to learn in order to become an expert. So, you know, that ends up feeding into all the other problems as well. When SLPs don't feel competent, it messes up everything. Yeah. I mean, and we know how we got here, right? We talked about how we got here where things just got added. And one thing's for sure is, you know, when the recession was happening and somebody said, is there a bottom? Or when the COVID numbers were climbing, they're like, is, when are we going to stop climbing? Even if we just fucking plateau, it'd be great. My question is, can we agree we should stop adding any new areas? Can we just stop that? I'm not saying take anything out. Look, I get that there are industries and expertise and teachers, and she even alluded to this, this idea of what about all the jobs that would lose if we separated out a medical versus a, or maybe we'd expand. But the point is, all the only conversation we're having is there's too much stuff. And no one's saying, well, can we just block off the flow of more stuff? Can we start there? Can we agree as a field in every industry, in every setting, in every blah, 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 we're not going to start doing cough and gag. And we're not going to start doing all the reading. And then we're not going to get into a vision. Like, when can we say that? If we can't say that, we can't say, okay, now let's know what we have. This is what we have. How do we manage this better? If we need a plan to have an SLPD or blah, blah, blah. But I think the problem is, Everybody's saying the same thing and nobody's saying, can we stop the flow? Can we stop the bleeding? (laughs) Right. Like, let's set up a barrier around what we've got and fix what we've got before we start looking outside for more stuff. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Let's move. Let's move on to uh, the perceived value of our Mm -hmm. because that's sort of a, you know, next logical place, especially when. We talk about the things, the thing, one of the issues being that there's too much stuff. There's too much for us to be responsible for. I was in a meeting recently with a fellow scientist who's collecting a bunch of data from SLPs where they report practice patterns and said, quote, SLPs can't encapsulate what they do in a few words, which makes data analysis really difficult. And when he was talking about it, he was talking about it from the frame of, I don't even know what to do with this because when I give SLPs a question and say, what did you do during this 30 minute session? They can't coherently explain what they do. But to me, you know, he was bringing up the issue as a science problem, which it is a science problem. But for me, it was like, holy crap, no wonder people can't make sense of what we do because we can't make sense of what we do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we haven't Mm -hmm. spent the time making sense of how all the bits of our field fit together and really 
explaining exactly what it is that we offer, explaining what our value is in a coherent way. So if we're talking about value, we absolutely need to know what the product is because you can say something like this thing costs a thousand dollars. And the question is what thing? Because it helps me to know whether a thousand dollars makes sense. Are we talking about a car? Are we talking about a plant? Because if we're talking about a plant, that's a whole hell of a lot of money. And if it's a car, it's too little. So the, the, the product itself matters. And like you said, that's what we can't figure out, much less the value. So of course we think we're undervalued because like you guys said, everybody wants to make more money. There's no field who's saying, God damn it, we study, you know, cancer. Dr. Threats was mentioning that of all the specialties in all hospitals, they make their money from intensive care, cancer, and surgery. And everybody damn well knows it. But cancer is not going, you know what, guys, what are we doing with all this cash? We're swimming in it. Let's give it to rehab. So let's establish that everybody wants more money, but at least the product is clear for cancer. The product is clear for surgery. The product is clear for intensive care, especially with COVID. We now understand that more than ever, right? At the same time, the value of what people do still can suffer, but perhaps it's suffering more for what we do because we don't. the product itself isn't clear. And I will also suggest the following, which is when Asha ushered in swallowing, there was backlash, obviously, from universities who were saying, who's going to teach this crap? And that continues to be the, play, the, the the case. But interestingly, there were a lot of physicians who were like, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons, whoever, who were hearing that a new service needs to be referred to by them. And that was speech pathologists, because so-and-so could have swallowing problems. They're like, explain that to me. Well, they could. And they're here to see if they do, then we'd be here for it. You know, Recently, I've heard some older cardiothoracic surgeons or just whoever say to me, like, you know, I was here when you guys started. I'm here now. And my patients aren't benefiting anymore. Now, it could very well be that their patients are. They're not. Where is the data? So this perceived value of the profession comes down to us. It's our job to prove that we're valued. It's not their job to shove money in our face from their wallets and say, Please go buy yourself a, a, a room that's bigger than the closet you work in. You deserve it because I don't know what the fuck you do here. If that's what we're waiting for, then I'll also add this very interesting thing that Dr. Threats said about perceived value of the profession is that Dr. Threats was saying that he had a meeting with insurance companies because they were rejecting claims for a student for a child program that he wanted to have. And the question they asked him was under the idea of how when are you when are you going to stop therapy kind of thing because he said we believe that if you therapists had your way you would see every patient forever so this comes back to the first episode where we talked about the government saying okay if 10 therapy sessions is enough give us data to support why we should have you should have more just help us to help you and we didn't have the data so because we don't know what we do and we can't get our heads together around collecting data for swallowing versus stuttering that alone is very different. We can't describe to a data analyst what the data are we're collecting. Oh, wait, we're not collecting anything but feelings and attitudes sometimes. Of course, we can't do anything but just say, just give us more money because we deserve it. We don't know what our product is, but we want respect. That's not enough. Right. That's just not the way it works. Yeah. And there's a scientist, um, another scientist that I talked to who mentioned major issues with because the scientists will hear these messages and, you know, be like, okay, we need more clinical practice data. We need more clinical practice data that can be used to justify, you know, what clinicians are doing and that it works and da, 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 da. They have issues entering places like schools because the schools don't value the SLPs enough that when a scientist comes up knocking and says, I'm here to help learn more about and improve um, SLP practice within your school, they don't go, oh, yes, fantastic. You know, we we value this so much that we're willing to bend our schedule a little bit and offer you some room so you can come in. They basically push back and are just kind of like, meh, that's not a priority. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all. It's like this whole complicated web of activity that needs to come from everybody all simultaneously because clinicians can't be like, somebody needs to get us the data that show what we do works. You also got to do what works. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or you have to be prepared that the data show you don't do what works because I have an ASH Foundation grant on that topic. And you know, it almost didn't get funded. And I under, I'm under the impression based on things people were willing to say that it almost didn't get funded for fear that it might reveal what's really going on in among SLPs. And sure enough, it did. And sure enough, we were actually told in one of our, uh, when we tried to get it published, 
this might not, we probably shouldn't publish this. This was in an ASHA journal because it would impact reimbursement rates. No, our lack of data impacts reimbursement rates. <laughs> uh, so don't we want to know what the problem is so we can fix it? Right, right, right. Like, let's dig in nope. on this. And yeah, nobody wants to know. Let me grab a um, couple other, like another good clip yep. that I think somewhat relates to this. This is Karen Dudek-Brannon, and I mentor pediatric speech pathologists who want to build better systems for their language therapy through my online programs, and you can find me at drkarenspeech.com. And since being in the field since 2004, I've been blessed to interact with SLPs of all different backgrounds and levels of experience, and one of the biggest challenges among all of those groups is workload. So if they're in the schools, it's often about caseload numbers. And if they're in a medical facility, it's usually more about productivity. But either way, all of them are finding that it's really hard to provide high quality services that get good results for their clients. And as a result, a lot of these really hardworking, talented therapists are feeling less fulfilled in their work less sure of themselves, and just overall burnt out. And I've actually surveyed some of the members of my programs and also some of my blog readers. And the question that I usually ask is, if I could wave a magic wand and double your salary or cut your caseload in half, which one would you pick? And cutting caseload seems to win every time. And in my personal experience, I found that finding that balance where you're feeling good about the services that you're providing and you're also able to do it in a reasonable amount of time that allows you to have some space in your life can actually free up a lot of energy and allow you to think about how to actually make more money or advance in your career. So actually cutting caseload seems to kill two birds with one stone and actually do both of those things. So for example, if you're not spending tons of time in the weeds with your caseload, you actually might have some time to think about taking adjunct assignments or going back and maybe getting a doctorate or maybe starting a private practice on the side or some consulting business. And for some people, it might be more about just having time to enjoy their life outside of work and showing up to work recharged and excited about what they do rather than just feeling exhausted all the time. So really that that whole caseload workload thing is just the one of the biggest problems and challenges that I see in the field right now. So can I can I say her bias is that she's asked white female middle class women about money versus time and quality of life and clearly they're not completely intertwined. So I do wonder if she asked a group of people like me, where, as I said, I am the one who made it, whether or not that'd be the case and whether I'd be like, look, I'm no, I'm not suggesting that these people are afraid of hard work at all. But if I have to choose between the stress of hard work and doing more for less, which is the black mantra, you have to be twice as good to be considered good enough. Well, bring it because I'm the money is the barrier. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, I just wonder whether or not uh, she's, when she said all different backgrounds, I don't think she meant actually that she had a decent sample of each because our field suggests she can't. So I just want to put that out there. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It would have been mostly white females. She just needs all different backgrounds, like different practice settings. Uh-huh. I thought that might be the case. Yeah. That's usually what SLPs mean. When... Yeah. 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 Because they're like, there aren't all different backgrounds. I've met five of you guys. <laughs> But I, I do I do I do appreciate what she said in that this idea of workload is huge. It doesn't just live in the clinical world. It also lives in the research uh, faculty world where the idea of working exactly 40 hours a week is a myth. Um, and a lot of times people in academic settings who aren't in a school of medicine, feel that they're not getting paid as much as the folks in the school of medicine. Like if you're in arts and if your department's in arts and science, you might be working just as hard, but you're not getting as much as if you were in a school of medicine doing research. And we know that researchers make more money than um, instructors, even if they all have the same degree. But I wonder if her, since we're highlighting the problems, that is a huge problem. But I wonder if there's a couple things happening. One is we don't do a good job of doing the research to know who should be on a caseload and having the evidence to even point to somebody and say, people like this don't need speech. 
Uh, just because he says his, uh, you know, just because he says this is a particular problem and this patient just won't eat. Okay. That doesn't mean they have an actual physiologic swelling problem. Like, have you asked anybody else? And the reverse is true. We do see patients who are like, no, that guy needs to be on our caseload. And that person doesn't make it because they, they talk fine. So we probably are part of the issue. Again, it goes into the clinicians understanding why research is important and the researchers understanding why the why clinicians and patients are important. Because when you go to get NIH grants, at least, you need to have your introductory sentence about why this impacts people's health. Why what you're studying impacts it. And if we don't have data from our clinicians saying it's because this percent of our patients end up getting discharged with blah, 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 our grants can't focus on something that's fundable, which means it can't focus on a clinical problem, which means we can't help you to define your population, which means your caseload is gigantic. We're not working together as a field across the various settings or across the various types of jobs we, we have. Right. And I, I think her I think her statement also um, brings in the concept of sometimes there's this barrier that you have to pass through, and it might be a perceived barrier. It might be a false barrier, but clinicians definitely, definitely report that the barrier that needs to be fixed before they can do different clinical practice in any way is caseload, workload, productivity issues. So time and fa faculty do the same thing. Their biggest problem is time. And in fact, I bet you she asked the same question to faculty members. Would you double your salary or cut your work in half? Everyone would say, cut my work in half because I can sit down and think about science. I can read a paper. And they always say, I just can't think about what I'm doing. I'm just in a, in a committee. Then I'm here, then there, and there. And next thing I know, it's 6 p.m. And I haven't done any of these other things. I haven't read any of the student things. I haven't, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. And I do wonder then if it's also cultural, because now um, I can speak for myself and say, I, I, I understand that. But culturally, maybe we feel like we have something to prove and we shouldn't push back because we should be glad to be there wherever we are. And maybe that's why we, we don't band together. And we actually look at the person who gets it all done and say, she's perfect. How does she get it all done? And really, we should be saying, should she have to do that? Right. Like, why on earth are all of those things on her plate? And why didn't she say no? Yeah. Why are you a superhero at stuff you shouldn't have to be doing? Like, why are you doing bus duty? Why are you cleaning mouths? I don't, I mean, let's, let's talk about taking on new shit. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and obviously it's because of money, right? So it sort of takes us to that. Did you want to move into how money flows or? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about money next because that's always it's, it's, it makes the world go round whether we like it or not. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Let me play one more SLP clip as we transition into this, yeah. because I think that it kind of moves from the topic of marketing ourselves and our perceived value and wanting more money, which interplay between those. This is Rachel Beckwith. I am a speech language pathologist in Arkansas. Our profession goes at this completely backwards. We won't get more pay until we are valued as a profession. We won't be valued as a profession until people understand what we do and what it takes to do it. And I loved that she said that because it's exactly the case. Like these two things don't exist without one another. You know, our perceived value, what we're doing, what product we're offering, what we're bringing to the table, and our pay. While our pay isn't what we wish it to be, I think we need to pay really close attention to where our dollars are going. So, you know, SLP's salary isn't gigantic. You can't, you know, SLPs can't be spending $1,000, $1,500 a year on things related to their job when our salary isn't that big in the first place, right? Um, but how much money guidance do SLPs get? How much do we talk about it? How much... Do we, you know, discuss what things we need versus what things we don't need? And do we even know where we should be putting our money? You know, yeah. like we talk about not having a seat at the table and not having enough lobbying done on our behalf, but we're spending our money in places that are not lobbying. That was mm -hmm. something that um, Marie Ireland um, brought up in my interview of her. In SLP, we've got way higher national membership numbers than most other related fields. 
but most other related fields have way higher lobbying dollars than us. Yep. So where's our money going? So to whom little is given, much is required is what we're saying here, which is when you have, uh, Dr. Threats talked about this too. He said, look, every household can't, uh, not every household, but many households can't afford everything, right? Maybe you do need a new furnace, but right now you're struggling with something else. That furnace has got another good year on it. So while the roof is crumbling, we're going to work on that. Most people can do all the renovations, HGTV style, uh, you know, like the dream home episode. But we do know that we are not loud enough to ASHA to say, we say where they, we want them to do stuff, but we don't say where they can do less stuff. Because if there is a if if it's a zero sum game, we don't want to pay more. We've established we don't want to pay more. I think it's fair to say that we'll say, okay, you are taking our money and we can't not pay you. But stop putting money into that and put it into this. And if you view ASHA as the body that is supposed to help us do things that we shouldn't have to do or can't do, like we say, we've hired these elected officials, if you will, to to go and lobby on our behalf. We've hired them to handle what it takes to have a a meeting with 11,000 people in it on a yearly basis so I can get decent CEUs. As Dr. Threat said, the central clearinghouse of these kinds of things, then we have the right to say, Let's show, open up your books, show us your budget, and we will start to tell you where we think this money should go. As opposed to saying, just spend more there so they can say, but we're spending it here. And we can say, actually, you know what? We're good. We're going to put buckets on the floor and let the water collect there and not work on the roof because we're cold and the furnace needs work. We have the right to at least do that. But the problem is, I suspect if we are talking about the clinicians and the faculty, at least, at the very least, we are all paying into the system We're too busy with just keeping our personal budget going by keeping our jobs to go look at their budget and say anything about lobbying because you know what? We probably don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. And we don't see how decision, how our lives now are impacted by people 20 years ago who didn't have 95% productivity standards where rehab was in its heyday before it got cut down so much. And we don't realize our decisions now. We think it can't get any worse, but maybe it can. So we're regularly talking about how people don't know enough about our perceived value and what we bring to the table and how we need to make sure to be at the table and nobody knows what we do do and all that type of stuff. And, you know, a lot of times I think it's easy to think of this in like a broad sense, but it helps a lot if you have very specific instances. So I can bring a couple specific instances because I'm currently um, in a state level leadership position in Kansas. So we'll talk about a couple of things that I've seen just within the last few months happen. Um, so for example, Kansas pays a lobbyist to notify us of state things that could affect SLPs and audiologists. And recently a telemedicine bill in our state came up where we were left off the definition of healthcare provider. So PTs and OTs were uh, on there. They were on there, but we weren't on that list. And when that bill came through, this is the exact type of thing that if Kansas SLPs weren't paying for a lobbyist in our state to tell us when something like that happened so that we could show up at the table. This is the type of thing that could allow private insurance companies to justify things like providing telehealth reimbursement for other fields, but not ours. And so we need to be aware of what tables we need to be sitting at, where we need to spend our effort and where we need to spend our money to ensure that things like that don't happen. Because what would happen if, you know, Kansas SLPs weren't paying with their state association dues, which paid a lobbyist, which allowed us to be notified of this and nobody caught it, it would mean that something would go through and then SLPs would be sitting there saying, eh, it's not fair. Like why, you know, why did our SLP or PTs and OTs on this? Well, nobody's looking out for us. Like, I think the big take home message is that nobody is going to take care of this for us. Nobody's going to protect us and make sure that we don't get hurt. Only we yeah. can protect us and make sure that we right. don't get hurt. Um, and so this, this stuff happened just months ago. Or like another example of something fairly recent. In 2018, there was a National Defense Authorization Act for military spouses that allowed people to, in some instances, practice across state lines, not SLPs, obviously, or allowed for expedited licensure. So basically it meant If you're a military spouse and you're in one of these professions and you move across state lines, 
we will allow expedited ex- expedited licensure so that you don't have a gap in you know your professional practice. PTs were on the list, OTs, teachers, nurses, but not us. We weren't on that list. That's an example of a situation in which we weren't at the table. And that was in 2018. This isn't something that it's like, oh, 40 years ago, somebody messed something up and now we're suffering the consequences. Like we weren't at the table in 2018 for that one. And so we need to start having a lot more conversations that aren't just why didn't ASHA do this for us? Why didn't the state associations do this for us? But also make sure that we understand how our actions influence the ability of state and national leaderships to be able to do those things on our behalf. For example, in the state, we need state dues. Otherwise, we can't pay a lobbyist. And you know, how are these SLPs who are volunteering to serve on the board supposed to stay on top of this stuff? We have no idea. We have no way, you know, getting notified of bills that are about to be passed. That's exactly it. Yep. There's no question about that. We do know that we do know we don't like, you know, this reminds me, uh, Meredith, of something you and I talked about, which is, I want to talk about the complainers (laughs) as a problem. I want to talk about people who just want to look at maybe you or I, or maybe even somebody working at ASHA and saying all the things they're not doing, but when they come with their problems, that they will have a workload that's too high. I can't actually help you with that. But I don't go into a clinical setting and saying, well, what have you done wrong to get here for 95%? The assumption to me is, well, they accepted a job and maybe they shouldn't have done it, but how hard is it to know what your job's going to be until you're in it, right? And it's easy for me to say, well, just quit. I would never say just quit to everybody, but I do find that they expect that someone will come in and fix their problems more. And then when there are people like us who you left and started the informed SLP, I left and started swallowing training education. Well, I didn't left and sorry, but I continued with that. It's so easy to criticize people who are trying to do something or maybe this podcast and the people criticizing are often aren't doing anything about what they aren't doing anything themselves for themselves. And they're criticizing our attempts to address an issue. And there are far more people who do nothing and complain than actually do something. I'm all for people criticizing ASHA, but also doing something. And that's why they get the backlash from people who say, we are ASHA, we are ASHA. Well, then you be ASHA in your way and you be ASHA in your way, but don't just don't do anything and complain all the time. Yeah. One of my biases is that I have a hard time understanding why sometimes people are put off by issue raising. Does it feel negative? Yeah, it does. (laughs) And does it cause a pit in your stomach? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, it does. But that doesn't mean that the better path is to sugarcoat things and suppress things. And, you know, that saying of, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I think when taken too explicitly and too far is actually one of the reasons why groups of people get stuck in seemingly unbreakable patterns that nobody actually wants. That's the type of behavior that maintains the status quo. And when the status quo is actually a downward path or a consistently plateaued, flat, unsatisfactory experience then avoiding talking about it is precisely how you maintain it. We have to talk about these things openly and critically in order to identify paths forward, no matter how uncomfortable or negative it feels. And also accept that two different statements can be true at the same time. The statement of some SLPs aren't doing well and they're complaining about these exact same things year after year after year and nothing is getting better, that statement is true. It's also true that there's a lot of SLPs in really great jobs, totally happy, who really don't see a need for change because they feel like our field is actually pretty great. Both of these things are true. And if you're someone who thinks things are mostly fine, just remind yourself that the presence of happy SLPs does not negate the areas we need to work on. I like issue raising, and there have been people who've said, I'd like to raise this issue with you around the idea of emphasizing what clinicians aren't doing well and not giving us a solution. That's very valuable to hear. So maybe I'll say, this is a problem, but also this is a thing you can do to learn more about it. Maybe I'll do more of that, right? But that's issue raising as opposed to our field is filled with women who trash other women and blah, blah. Whoa, that's complaining. Where is that going? 
are you raising an issue? And since we're talking about us and being business people and this idea that um, money makes the world go round, but it's also corrupting. And going back to the first episode, we said two things. One is we know money's important and we know that speech pathologists were discouraged from being um, private practitioners because the idea was that we're supposed to be able to be helpers and we would be corrupted if God forbid we made money. Well, what does that say about attorneys and physicians? They're good ones and bad ones, no matter where you go. But I would also say that that culture is so pervasive that risk-taking is a problem. Risk-taking inherently is going to suck up something, your reputation, it's going to suck up your time. It's going to suck up your money. It might even suck up your mental health. There are many ways that taking a risk that people assess why I should not do this. But money is a big one. And a lot of people will say, I don't want to give Ash anywhere my money. But they often don't think of innovative ways to live a life where they don't need Asha, but can still use their training. And that's where PhDs are great. A lot of PhDs go into administration. They go into business. They go into all these other things because they realize... I don't have to be a clinician who complains about productivity, and they've now seen so many examples of things in other fields, but SLPs are insular, and if they see an example in another field, they just complain that PTs get more money for their rehab gym than we do, but they don't say, now, how can I get a sponsor in a business to come here and give us something free if we, in turn, well, we don't want to be seen as people who would, oh, God, well, you've lost on every turn. You don't want to be have a reputation of somebody who sticks their neck out there. You don't want to suck up your time doing it. You don't want to put any money into it. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to. Yeah, the culture is bad for that kind of thing. We now have a field where ASHA has put out, maybe a month ago, a questionnaire about whether or not there should be required CEUs on the topic of cultural humidity, diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever fad term is going on. It used to be competence, whatever, right? And, you know, there's been some discussion about whether that should be the case, should be required, shouldn't it, et cetera. Overall, there is a general expectation that our field is too homogeneous in one way and we need more other, right? But the thing that I keep asking is, what is it about white culture that promotes this idea that we need people from this fringe culture to come in in order to help this fringe population at the patient level? Meaning, at the, 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 the big altruistic thing people say is like, at the end of the day, we need diversity to help the clients and patients who don't represent, who, who don't represent us. Well, how, what does that say about my ability to help all the white people I help? My patient caseload is not a bunch of black people with Canadian Jamaican descent. And why would I be able to help an Indian person more than a white person? What is it that you assume about me that you can't fix in yourself? What is it about white culture where the specialists need to come in to help with a specialized population? Because I just can't do it, child. But the other way is not the case. Nobody's giving me specialized shit to help any to help the majority. And it's like they know how to help white people. Everybody knows how to help white people. We raised you. We brought you to this country to help white people. You understand our culture. We are the majority. But we don't know how to help you. And frankly, we don't want to bother to learn because all you've got to do is start doing the work. You don't really need two more students in your program who one day, 20 years down the road, might be the MLK of the field. You need to actually do the work to find out what the other cultures are and do the same thing we do, which is, no, I'm not from white culture, but I understand how to modulate because I've been forced to. So why can't we address that? I think the reason we can't address that is because first we have to understand where white culture falls short that keeps us from understanding why they can't help, but I can, I'm expected to help um, people outside of my culture. And in fact, come in and teach them. Right. Come in and teach them how to do it. Yeah. Or just take over that caseload for them so they don't have to. And I do think that there's areas where it makes sense. Look, obviously, someone who's bilingual, especially in the same language as somebody else, is going to get it more than me. I'm not bilingual. I do not understand what that world is. Perhaps somebody who used to stutter might help somebody who currently stutters better. But we also don't say we need more stutterers in our field. We need more people with swallowing problems. The assumption is I have to be able to flip my lid and say, what? I have to think outside of my head a little bit. So it doesn't seem to transfer to culture. We need to be much more critical of and responsible for the care that we give our clients and identify ways in which it's um, racist, ableist, insufficient, and perhaps 
even a driver of our lack of perceived value among both the individuals we serve and those who observe what we do. And if anything, it's just, it's a major area for growth. We're not decentering ourselves and exploring this closely enough. And it's also excruciating to see comments where people say, you just really want to separate political and professional. And to think that my dad's life, who might end up with a peg tube because the SLP didn't want to listen to him, is a political issue. He's not a political issue. He's a man who wants the best care. But the personal issue are the white people then? That's part of your job. But the political issue are the non-white people? Like, that's an issue that needs to be raised. And sure, we can complain about it. But the issue really is when white people can talk about white people, then we can talk about issues, right? That's that's the main issue of why we're here. Women are happy to talk about women and sexism. Boy, you can't shut them up, right? But those same white, those same white women, you talk about race and the clam up is like you can hear the clam shut for miles. Oh, I'm a majority now. Uh-oh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, shit. I haven't spent enough time thinking about this one. I haven't, you know, laid in bed at night, frustrated by this one. (laughs) 